Our passage today is Romans 3, 20 through 26. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for joining us this morning for corporate worship at Sojourn. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here. We've already gone on quite the journey in the book of Romans so far, haven't we? Uh, we started really high. This is the gospel of God. It's concerning. It's all about his son, this, the son who was descended in the line of David and rose in power uh, from the dead. I mean, it's this great gospel that Paul is making sure hits the, the Romans and hits in this, this great city and this massive influential city of Rome where Christians are by the grace of God. And, and in a sense, like Paul laid out in the first few verses some of the, the gospel floor plans that he's going to build on for the rest of the book of Romans. He, he unfolds in, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, a thesis statement of sorts for the entire book, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by, by faith. And, and he gives us this massive statement, this beautiful statement of the gospel and a, a summary of the gospel, and he doesn't linger there at all. He moves on quickly. He moves from kind of like, here's the, the gospel floor plans, and, and here's how we're going to construct this thing. He moves from the construction plan to the destruction plan. And he starts to tear down whatever structures of righteousness people have or claim to have in their lives. He begins to start tearing them down before he moves forward to build anything else. So instead of speaking more on that beautiful thought in verse 17 of that righteousness that he spoke of, that's from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous are going to live by faith. Instead of speaking more on that righteousness that's revealed, he starts to talk about something else that's also revealed. Chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And that would include all. But some thought that chapter 1 was for others. They thought that they could write themselves out of chapter 1 because of some structure of righteousness that they had built in their lives. And Paul takes that structure, whatever it is, if they got out of chapter 1 and he destructs it in chapter 2. If they were riding high after chapter 1 still, Paul brings them right down in chapter 2. And then any who were left after chapter 2, whatever, again, structures of righteousness are left after chapter 2, they don't get left after chapter 3. In rapid-fire succession, 
Paul in chapter 3 says all, he says that twice, all, all, none, not one, no one, times three, not even one. If you thought that you could get out of chapter 1 and 2, he says, let's make sure, right, and I'll repeat it multiple times so that you know you have no righteousness on your own. All, all, none, not one, no one, no one, no one, not even one. He says, weighed before the Lord by your guilt, you're all in the same boat, justly condemned by God, under his wrath and judgment that you deserve for your sin and ungodliness and unrighteousness that is present in your life. Which is why Paul's words in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now, can be described as some of the best words in all of the Bible. Certainly some of the best words in the New Testament and some of the best words that we've encountered in the book of Romans so far. You see, the real weight of being condemned under God's fury and wrath because of our own unrighteousness is finally met with relief in these words here, but now. Paul begins to elaborate here in verse 21 on what he spoke about way back in chapter 1, verse 17. And in this crucial section, in, in chapter 3, verse 21 through 26, Paul is going to unfold that reality of the righteousness of God for us. You see, Paul writes in this passage that is one sentence in the original, what one author says is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. It's the very heart of the book of Romans, it's the very center of the gospel. Paul writes that the righteousness of God, his saving righteousness, his justifying righteousness, this righteousness that can't be obtained by human effort or works of any kind has been revealed. It can be received by faith in Jesus, and it's a righteous righteousness. That is, it demonstrates the righteousness of God. It shows forth his righteous character, right? Standing before God. Justification, the not guilty verdict before God in the heavenly court is available. And the need for that righteousness has been thoroughly exposed during the destruction plan of chapter 118 through chapter 3, verse 20. It's been thoroughly exposed. So this unrighteousness is out there for all to see. And it's answered in this section here four times he speaks of the righteousness of God in verses 21 through 26. It's a righteousness that's not obtained by works. It's a righteousness that's received by faith. And there's no better news. And Paul wants to make sure he explains and describes this gospel carefully. And so as, the, as if lifting the weight off the reader's shoulders after the unrighteousness that he revealed in, in chapter 1 through chapter 3, verse 20. He begins with these, this breath of fresh air, as it were, in verse 21. But now, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us. This but now is pointing his readers like we are now in, a, we're looking at a new era of salvation history, of redemptive history with the, the coming of Jesus, with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, salvation history has transitioned dramatically from this old covenant and the old way of the law to a new covenant and life in Christ. Jesus has ushered in this new era. In the old covenant, in the old era, all were 
in chapter 3, we saw this so clearly, under sin, under its power, unable to get over it, all were under it. But now, he says, verse 21, but now, this new era, righteousness is available. Paul is referencing in these two words a major shift in redemptive history, a shift that the old covenant looked forward to. It pointed to all along. I love the balance of verse 21 because he's been talking about, well, like, well, what advantage do the Jews have? What about the old covenant? What about the law? What about these things that we have? Weren't they of some value? And he says, well, righteousness is revealed apart from the law, but it's not as if we should just like, well, forget about the law and the prophets. No, 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 not that. They were bearing witness to it. It was that kind of advantage. They were bearing witness to the righteousness that has now been revealed in Jesus. The law and the prophets, he says, bear witness to this righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from the law. You might remember that in, in the book of Luke, Jesus is resurrected and, and on the road to Emmaus, he, he meets with two men and while on the road, after his resurrection, listen to the words that he says to them. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scripture the things concerning himself. He was referencing things that they would have known, that would have been available. He's looking at the Old Testament, how, that's how we know it, and he's looking at them, and he's looking at all those things that are there about himself because he could. Because all those things were pointing in his direction. The Old Testament were, was pointing to him. The, the era that was before has now been brought to completion and fulfillment in Christ. In the book of Deuteronomy, here's a key book of the law. It spoke of a, a prophet to come, a prophet that was like Moses, a, a better Moses. It spoke of, hey, you're going to go into this land, and what you're going to need there to, to obey me and to do these things and to keep these things is a circumcised heart. So it looked forward to a heart that be transformed. Jeremiah 31 speaks of this new covenant that was to come. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 36 speaks of the, the law being written on a heart because you have a new heart given to you by God. Isaiah 53 says you've, you've all turned aside. You've turned every one of you to his own way. But, but the Lord is going to lay on the suffering servant the iniquity of his people. I mean, there's foreshadowing. There's anticipation. There's types. There's prophecies. There's promise. And they're all looking forward. They're all pointing to bearing witness to the righteousness of God that would be revealed in Jesus. And that's the righteousness of God that Paul is saying when he says, but now, in verse 21, all along the prophets, they bear a unified witness to the righteousness of God that was to be revealed. And now we can read it and say it is now has been revealed to us. Verse 22 says, back in the book of Romans, verse 22 says the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ. For all who believe, for there is no distinction. That the righteousness of God, that is his saving righteousness that justifies sinners, securing for them, this not guilty verdict, it's declared before, but it's true of them now in this present time, that not guilty verdict that will be pronounced at the end, that righteousness that was pointed to but could never be obtained by the old covenant under the law and the prophets has been revealed. And Paul is abundantly clear that it's available to all. It's not revealed only to those under the old covenant. It's not revealed to those who are of a certain class or status or a certain ethnicity. They don't have to have a certain social status in order to have this righteousness revealed to them. It's available to all. He, he says this in a few different ways. It's for all who believe. And then he says that there's no distinction. He's highlighting its universal availability. And that God's saving righteousness, 
his justifying righteousness, that that is available to both the Jew and the Greek, to both the Jew and the Gentile in the same way by faith in Jesus is a massive truth. If you've read the book of Acts, Paul's letters, you see the early church, they had to deal with all sorts of turmoil and struggle over this very issue. What do we do with, with those who are under the old covenant? How, how are they then fitting into the people of God now that Jesus has come and he's died and been raised? Like, how, do, how does that fit together? And then we got these, those who weren't under the old covenant, the, the, the Gentiles, the Greeks, and we got to figure out, well, like, if they believe in Jesus, now what do we do with them? And it created all sorts of turmoil, and Paul writes on it extensively. And here's what Paul is saying, though. With the death of Jesus, with his life, death, and resurrection— now we have access to the righteousness of God, his saving righteousness for all. Paul dealt with that very issue as an apostle to the Gentiles. And part of the purpose of his writing of the book of Romans is this unity among them that we're going to see a lot of in chapters 12 through 16. The unity among Jew and Gentile and how we relate and interact and are unified together. And it's instructive that before he gets there, he's laying the foundation that the gospel is of first importance. That the righteousness of God that's available to all because there's no distinction is what we get to first. So Paul, so far in the book of Romans, has made sure they all know, Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, that they're all under the just and righteous condemnation of God as sinners. And then he tells them the good news. But what's available to those sinners who have unrighteousness before God, what's available to them equally is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus. There is no distinction. All are under judgment. And all have salvation available to them, not in the law, not in the old covenant, but in Jesus Christ. Now certainly this is a truth that needs to continue to resound, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That the qualification for the righteousness that's revealed from God is that you be a sinner. He, Jesus, he's the good physician, but he came to heal the sick, right? The, they are the ones that need the doctor. And so if you've been with us in the book of Romans so far, hopefully thoroughly exposed in your own life is your own unrighteousness, your own deserving of God's wrath and judgment. We are those who qualify for the righteousness that's reveal, been revealed by God. It, Jesus is this good shepherd, and he says of his sheep, I, I want to lay down my life. I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. But I also have sheep of another fold. And I'm going to go get them too. He says in, in the book of John that when he's lifted up, he's going to draw all men, all people, that is all kinds of people without distinction to himself. And that's what Paul is highlighting in this righteousness that's revealed. It's universally available. And salvation then is held out to the Jew and to the Gentile, to us. But then we have to ask, how is this righteousness that's revealed available? How does anyone, without distinction, all kinds of people, how do we get in on this righteousness, this saving righteousness of God? It's not a righteousness that one can work themselves into. It's not something you can achieve by self-effort. It's not something you can earn by merit, by works, by great religious activity, works of the law. This righteousness is revealed by God is a righteousness that's only ever received. Verse 25 says it's received by faith. Verse 22 says it's for all who believe. That is, have faith. You, you receive this righteousness by believing. Salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone. Right? John 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. 
It's through Jesus, and, and we are included in that by our belief, by our faith in Jesus. There's no other way to get in on this righteousness other than faith. It's only by faith. No other path to salvation. He goes on to say in verse 22, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why we need in on this righteousness, because we have fallen short of the glory of God. Adam and Eve, in the, the creation account, were, were created, and they were created good, and they were created to, may, to know God, and to glorify God, and to honor God, and to give thanks to God. God looks at his creation, including Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, this is very good, and they've got to walk with God. They had a place in the garden that was created by God for them to have fellowship and communion with him. He made a place for them to know him and walk with him. They had glory. But instead of continuing to honor God and give thanks to God, they instead tried to be God. Wasn't that the temptation? You, you can be like God. And instead, they followed the pattern of Romans chapter 1, verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. They trans, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for themselves and placed themselves on the throne. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, uh, another place where he talks about all sin. He says of Adam, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The Jews, they have the law. They had circumcision. The Gentiles, they might have some deep philosophy. Uh, Americans might have some religious heritage. Some of you might have some sort of good background. You, you know the Bible, got a great family, Christian family around you. But here's what Paul says, all fall short. There's no distinction or, or category of shortness. All fall short of the glory of God. That's what, you, not, not, again, no category of short. You're just, you're short of the glory of God. That's where we are. We're all in that same category. Short of the glory of God. I, I love it. You know, kids, you know, they argue sometimes, like, who's taller? And you're just standing over them, like, three foot taller. And like, what difference does it make? You're like, you're all, you're all short. <laughs> and that's humanity, right? Like, you look at the holiness and the greatness of God, and in comparison to God's holiness, you look, look down, like, you might think you're more righteous than another. They might think they're more righteous than you. They might be arguing, you might be arguing about who's holier. And God looks down and says, you're all short of the glory of God. That's where you are. That's your condition. Short. No one is living the life that God designed them to live. No one is fully knowing and honoring and loving and giving thanks to God as they were made to do in the garden. No one can attain the right relationship with God on their own. No one is going to get eternal life with God because of our unrighteousness that we have present within us. That means all of us are headed to a path of death. And we all feel this, right? We, we feel the weight of this. You, you sense your falling shortness, don't you? It's stitched into us, Romans 1 says. In, in Romans 1, 21, he says, although they knew God, we could include ourselves right in that. Although we knew God, we didn't honor God as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. We, we know, we know that there's a God. We're accountable to him on some level. It's stitched into us in our human nature. We know there's a God and we know we're falling short. We feel it. We know it on some level. The song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, has this great line. It says that we're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Now, that song was written over 200 years ago. 
and it still resonates. There are a ton of songs. Like, pick your, what's the love song of your day? Pick it. It's, no one knows it anymore, probably. Right? Songs come and go. That one's been 200 years, and we're still singing it, and, and because it resonates. We are prone to wonder. We feel it. We feel it. We know this. We have this Romans 121 knowledge of our own lives. We feel it. It resonates when we're harsh with our spouse, when we're critical of our children, when we put that digging comment on social media, when we complain about our work, when we're unfeeling toward the Lord in any capacity, when we should be giving thanks and honor to God for the very breath in our lungs. Like, we feel it. We should feel it. We should know it. We should memorize Romans 3.23 because we have fallen short of the glory of God. But we need to remember that that sentence didn't end. There's not a period in verse 23. It continues. All fall short of the glory of God, but God writes people with himself. Verse 24. Please memorize verse 23 and then keep going. All fall short of the glory of God and are justified, made right in God's sight by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God's grace, his power at work in our powerless lives where we weren't living in the glory and honor of God that we are made to and we couldn't fix it. We couldn't get ourselves out of it. We couldn't work our way into saving righteousness before God. And his grace comes, his power at work in our powerless lives. And it is showcased here in this thing he calls justification. He justifies us by his grace. He makes us right in his sight by his grace. Right relationship with God is only ever restored by God's grace. Right status, justification, is only ever received as a gift from God. And the gracious gift of justification being made right in God's sight is available because of the work of Jesus. Because of his atoning death, his work of redemption, he says. It's a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. One time I showed up with my wife at a, a steakhouse that was well beyond me. And I walked into that steakhouse without my wallet. And I sat down and I ordered a steak. And all the fixings that went with it. And enjoyed every single bite of it. If you ever have the chance to eat beyond your means, it can be great. <laughs> and I, as I went in, like I'm looking around like I'm out of place here. Like I don't know if I belong here. But I ate and enjoyed because I had been given a gift to be redeemed at that steakhouse that says, you don't even need to bring your wallet in. You just bring this thing in, and you're going to lay it down at the table at the end, and they're going to be like, done. Your steak is paid for. I hope you enjoyed your time. We'll see you next time. That gift was purchased for me, given to me as a gift, and I had a place at the table with an amazing steak because of the work of another. And right standing with God is, is available, is for those who have fallen short of the glory of God. It's available because he gives it to them as a gift by the work of another. Re redemption is a gift given, bought by Jesus Christ. It's not the sacrificial system that redeems. He says in Romans or Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. 
It, it could never atone for sin. He, he doesn't say you're justified, that you're redeemed by your great religious works, by your human power, by, by your effort to be better. I, he says you're justified, you're redeemed as a gift by the grace of God through the work of Jesus. And that redemption, as the redemption that maybe in many Jews' mind would have went back to, the, the redemption from slavery to, to Egypt, would have shown, would have reminded them, that's only by the power of God. And God is the only one who can redeem. He was the only one that could have pulled them out of Egypt. They weren't mighty and powerful and strong. They couldn't release themselves from slavery. They were under the thumb of the powerful ones. And yet God comes and he makes it abundantly clear, I'm the one who redeems and I'm the only one that can. And when they hear that work of redemption through Jesus, they, they need to be thinking back to that and thinking like, yeah, that's only the work of God. And he does it through Jesus. It's only through redemption in Jesus that one can be justified. Made right in God's sight. Any can be justified because there's no distinction. We can be justified because we can get it and on through it through Jesus. Anybody can be brought back from the glory that we've lost through the redemption that's found in Jesus. It's a gift that's only to be received by faith. And Paul wants to continue to build on that idea that it's received. He says, verse 25, whom God put forward, that's Christ Jesus, God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. The, the work of redemption, of buying back his people from their fallenness, from their shortness of his glory, is the work of God accomplished by Jesus. God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And propitiation is one of our favorite words around here. So we need to make sure we're clear on its understanding. And what you may know is that you may like to say it, and we do like to say it around here, propitiation. But if you've been following us, hopefully you know how needed that specific word is in this point in the text. But if not, you need to know that that specific word, propitiation, is very much needed based on what we've seen in the book of Romans so far. You see, in chapter 1, verse 18, it was the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be what? Wrath and fury. Wrath and fury from our holy God is directed at all the unrighteousness of men and the unrighteous men, which includes everybody under creation. But propitiation is a word that's directed at wrath. Propitiation is this turning away of that wrath. A satisfying of that wrath to where there's no wrath left. And Jesus, he says, is put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is, by his death, his sacrificial death. In the tabernacle, in the temple, there was this place. There's the holy place, and then there's the most holy place. The, the holy place, and then the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen uh, Indiana Jones, you know basically what this looks like, right? The cherubim are overshadowing part of this ark, and, and underneath the cherubim, the, under the shadow of them, their wings, is what we call the mercy seat. It's most often referred to as the mercy seat. It could be the atonement cover, the atonement lid. It's shadowed by the cherubim's wings. This would be, a, in a sense, a, the place where God's presence is, right, amongst his people. And on the, the day of atonement, the, the high priest, he, he would take a goat on that day, 
and slaughter the goat for the sins of the people and take some of the blood into the holy of holies and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat, on the atonement cover as the law required. That blood was necessary for him to go in. It was necessary for them to continue to have right relationship as the people of God with their holy living God to atone for their sin. And so through blood sacrifice, they were being shown through blood sacrifice, sin is atoned for. The wrath of God is turned away. But notice in the the law, it, it had to be the high priest, had to come in with blood, and it had to be sprinkled on the mercy seat. You couldn't just throw it on the walls. That wasn't the idea. There was a specific place for that blood to go. And all of that was pointing forward. We could say that it was a pre-enactment. The word that Paul uses for propitiation here is the same word that's used in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for mercy seat in Leviticus 16. The book of Hebrews uses it in chapter 9 of the mercy seat. Same word Paul uses for propitiation here. He's tying these things together. Jesus, the, the great high priest, he comes in and he offers his own blood, he himself being the mercy seat. And although that, that, the metaphor breaks down drastically in all those categories, right? I think it's meant to. He transcends all of those things, right? He is the great high priest. He brings his own blood and he, labor, he puts it on the mercy seat, which is himself. In other words, Christ atones, he covers, he propitiates, he turns away the wrath of God. It's by him that the sin of the people is removed. And certainly, it's no mistake that under that mercy seat was the tablets of the law that were broken by every single person that were outside of the Holy of Holies. In chapter 3, verse 20, what do we read? By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And in verse 21, what do we have? But but now, righteousness in Jesus. Jesus' sacrificial death, his propitiation, does what the law could not do. His propitiation justifies. It grants saving righteousness where the law, by works of the law, no one could be righteous before God. It could not produce righteousness. Here Jesus comes along and he himself, the great high priest, offers his own blood as the mercy seat. And it accomplishes and grants what nothing else could ever grant, righteousness before God. And I love how Paul does this. He's layered the words here so far justification, redemption, propitiation. He is making it inescapable for them to conclude that this is the work of God and nothing else. This is only the work of God. Notice that it's God who's revealed his wrath against all unrighteousness and God whose wrath needs to be satisfied because he is the holy, just God and it's God himself who provides for that wrath. One receives propitiation, redemption, justification, saving righteousness of God by means of faith and no way else. Verse 22, through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Verse 25, God put forward a propitiation to be received by faith. Verse 26, he was to be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus, he is unveiling for us what we would call the doctrine of justification by faith. That we are made right in the sight of God by our trust, our belief, our faith in Jesus Christ. And it's this doctrine that the the scholars have said, like it's by this doctrine that the, the church rises and falls. 
Because if we lose this, we lose Jesus because we don't have him if we say anything else, right? J.I. Packer talked about this doctrine as the, the atlas of all the, all the knowledge we have of the gospel. It rests here. Pa- Luther talked about it as the rise and the fall of the church, the, the hinge of the door which swings eternal life. It's the heart and the center of the gospel that we are made right in God's sight by our faith in Jesus. Sinners are justified. They receive righteousness, the not guilty verdict by faith in Jesus or not at all. So it is important for us to ask, do we have faith in Jesus? Paul, to the second, in the letter to the second Corinthian, in second Corinthians, to the Corinthians, he, he tells them, and he says, why don't you examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith? And those are good questions to ask. But my fear is, when we speak of the justification, the doctrine of justification by faith, that often that doctrine and justification by faith is misunderstood or misapplied. And then when it's misunderstood and misapplied, the saving righteousness of God is subtly undercut. With this good and right emphasis upon justification by faith and upon receiving righteousness of God by faith, what we can do kind of subtly is we can make faith something that you do. We we can make faith another kind of work, something to work hard at, something to stir up, something to conjure within you. Like, oh, that's what I need to do. Like, let's look inward and figure out how I can do this. And then what happens when you do that, when you make it another work, when you make it something you're going to work at and accomplish and achieve, when you, when you turn to more self-effort to be justified by God, what you can start asking, and rightly so, is am I doing enough? Or we could say it this way, do, do I have enough faith to be saved? And do I have enough faith is the wrong question. And it misunderstands and misapplies, or both, justification by faith. One commentator says, it is faith that places us in proper relation to this righteousness because faith is receiving and resting. It is self-renouncing. It looks away from itself and finds it's all in Christ. Faith justifies because it puts us in right relation, proper relation, as he says, to Jesus. It is not faith that justifies. Jesus justifies by being a propitiation by his blood. And faith puts us in proper relation to Jesus. It's not faith that justifies, but faith in Jesus that justifies. And the object of that faith makes all the difference in the world. What it does if we're justified by faith in Christ is we're saying that we're relying not on the strength or purity or intensity of our faith, We're relying on Jesus. The object makes all the difference. We're not relying on our faith for righteousness before God, for a not guilty verdict before God. Hallelujah. We're relying on Jesus. One, another author says this, God doth justify the believing man, yet not for the worthiness of his belief but for his worthiness who is believed. It is, again, not the strength of your faith that justifies you. It is not the purity of your faith that justifies you. It is not the intensity of your faith that justifies you. It is the object of your faith for which you are justified. 
faith isn't relying on self. Faith, what it actually is, its very essence is to renounce self. Faith isn't a looking inward to find something there. Faith, again, of its essence, of its nature, is to look outward to Christ and find all in him. Faith is taking God at his word and, and receiving and resting and receiving gospel promises so that we can say, like, I don't know how strong my faith is, but when I'm looking to be justified only by Christ alone through what he has done, that's saving faith. It receives those truths from the scripture and it rests in them for their very life. And hearing and speaking on the righteousness of God should not lead us, hopefully, to look inward for that, but to look outward to Jesus and to receive it only from him. Righteousness is received by faith through the work of Jesus. And only this is the way for righteousness before God. And that's also the only way that that righteousness that he grants to us can be righteous righteousness. Why did God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood? Why does that have to happen? And Paul gives us three purpose clauses in verses 25 through 26 for why this has to happen. It starts with the word this. The second word, second purpose clause begins in verse 26, the beginning, and the third one is after that comma in our translation of so that. So there's three purpose clauses for this. He says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That's the first it was to show his righteousness at the present time. That's the second. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's the, the third. He, he is trying to explain how God's righteousness, his saving righteousness, can go together with his righteous character. How do those fit? He needs them to sync up. So in other words, the question is, how can a holy God be righteous, himself have this righteous character, holy, pure, and righteous in himself, and at the same time justify sinners. We may not know that's a problem, but that's a problem. <laughs> we may not have a problem with God in that, but God would have a problem if he just justified sinners without anything, because he's holy, because he's righteous. And so this is a good question. How can a righteous God justify sinners? Well, here's how Paul says, through the, get this, voluntary, divine son of God, we could call him the lamb of God who was slain. Through, through the voluntary death, sacrificial, blood-soaked death of Jesus, that's how. He says, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. We know, we, we already read, the, the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away sin. It couldn't atone for sin, not fully, not completely. The old covenant sacrifice, the old covenant works of the law, they couldn't fully, completely pay for sin. Couldn't be done. They weren't full. They weren't complete. They weren't equal to the sinner. They looked forward. They testified. They bore witness to what was to come, the righteousness that God would reveal in Jesus. In the present time, None can work themselves into God's saving grace. We can't achieve righteousness before God. Try as we might. And so how is the righteousness that he gives us righteous? God never like fudges the numbers like, oh, we'll just squeak them through. We'll just let this one slide because I like them. Here's what he does. The, the death of Jesus, that's what shows us how God can be righteous and the one who grants righteousness to sinners. The death of Jesus shows God's 
God's righteousness that he grants was righteous righteousness. He shows how it could be in his forbearance and how in his forbearance he could be righteous. Jesus' sacrificial death is enough to fully forgive, to fully atone for, to fully secure eternal redemption for all time, those who put their faith in Jesus. Jesus bears their wrath. And so God, in looking to his people, is looking through his son. The cover, right? He sees them through the mercy seat. He sees them through Jesus. The blood has been sprinkled like atonement has been made, and they're, they're only seen and accepted. They're only granted righteousness through that blood, or they're not. And so God is righteous in his forbearance. He's righteous in showing righteousness now. And he says at the end of verse 26, he is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. John Stott concludes like this. By by bearing himself in Christ, the fearful penalty of our sins, God not only propitiated his wrath, turned it aside, completely satisfied it, ransomed us, there's redeem, it's, it's a transactional purchase, ransomed us from slavery, justified us in his sight and reconciled us to himself, but thereby also defended and demonstrated his own justice. By the way he justified us, he also justifies himself. What a God. So God is now seen as both the just and the justifier. Could there be a greater God? And so what Paul has done in the book of Romans, he, he gave us the gospel floor plans early on. And then he spent a lot of time saying, I, what, what, show me your structures of righteousness. That one gets ripped down. That one gets ripped down. Oh, you don't think yours is ripped down? Here in chapter 3, no, 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 none, none, not one, not even one. That one's ripped down too. But he does it all to construct a righteousness rightly. He levels human righteousness in order to build back the righteousness of God, the saving, justifying righteousness of God by faith in Jesus. We could say it this way. He, he's placing for believers the cornerstone. And it's that cornerstone of our lives and our faith and our life together that we rely on for everything. And so it's worth asking, is Jesus Christ your righteousness? Is he the cornerstone of your life. When other things shake and tremor, and they will, is something holding it all secure? Paul tried to make sure he blasted everything else down so he could lay one down that would stand throughout eternity. He laid everything else down so that you could know you have eternal redemption secured for you in Christ Jesus. He's the cornerstone of our lives, the cornerstone of our faith, the cornerstone of our lives together, the cornerstone of our church. And it's that cornerstone that we remember together. And what do we look at? We look at his propitiation, his redemption. We remember his body that was broken, his blood that was poured out, so that we who have faith in him might have righteousness before God, a not guilty verdict. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, let's revel, let's exult, let's be joyful in the righteousness, the not guilty verdict that's declared for us right now, and let's keep declaring it together until the Lord returns and finally and fully shows us that it's done. If you're not a believer, we put your faith in Jesus. This is the only righteousness that can hold. Every other righteousness is going to be shaken to the ground one day, but this is the one that can be held and sustained whatever shakes it. 
we would entreat you, please put your faith in him. Let's pray together as we prepare for this meal. How sweet the sound of saving grace. All other ground on which we would approach you, Lord, is sinking sand. We have no hope but for you, and in you we have all hope for forgiveness of sins, for renewed hearts, for knowing and walking with the God who created us every day until that day when you come back for us again to give justice finally to all wickedness on the earth and to give us our reward of simply trusting in you totally undeserved. But that's how this story ends. And we will proclaim your death until you come. And when we drink this juice and eat this bread, we remember that we are qualified. We are sinners. We are in need of saving. And we also remember how good and gracious you are. God, I pray for those here today who are afraid that they have weak faith and that their faith is not enough and that they're not believing hard enough and that they aren't walking well enough and in a Christ-like enough manner to truly be Christians. God, I pray they would get their eyes off of themselves and onto you. In your death, which covered all of our sins. Strengthen knees where they are weak. And where there are those who say, I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that you would, God, that you would bowl us over with your goodness and your love and your mercy in this tremendous act of being just and punishing sin and being the justifier offering yourself as propitiation to stave off your wrath. Thank you, Jesus. For those who don't know you, Jesus, let them run. Give them new hearts today. Grant repentance and faith. Draw all men and women to yourself. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus.